you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews, Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. See if we can get back online here. All right. Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be looking over the next four weeks at the book of Habakkuk. It is my favorite Old Testament book, at least my favorite Old Testament prophet. There are some other books that are kind of great uh, uh, that I really love in the Old Testament as well. Uh, I love teaching the Old Testament because I think so often we spend a lot of time in the New Testament without uh, really understanding the foundation that was laid in the Old Testament that builds into that message of the New Testament. And so this month I want to talk to you and speak with you about this topic, what in the world is God doing? Do you ever look around yourself and wonder what in the world is God doing? Not too long ago, one of our members met me on a Wednesday night after one of the mass shootings in our country and said, Pastor Don, why do you think God allows that? And we talked about that, and we'll talk about it in the coming weeks. And every once in a while, we look at, on the news, well, not every once in a while, pretty much every night, you look at the news, and all kinds of stuff happening, all kinds of evil things happening, and we have to ask the question, as did the prophet Habakkuk, what in the world is God doing? And Habakkuk helps us answer that question. It helps us answer a question when we live in a world, world of moral degradation and national disintegration. When a world where right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. And Habakkuk helps us to look at the world in which we live and what our God is doing in it from a biblical perspective. And so I'm looking forward to sharing this book with you. I hope you'll read it through each week, three short chapters. If you haven't found it yet, it's four chapters in from Matthew. Go backwards four four books and you'll be to the book of Habakkuk. Or as I've heard some pronounce it, Habakkuk. So uh, Habakkuk. Either way is fine. We don't really know how the Hebrews pronounce their uh, words. And so it's our best guess to try to get the, the, the thing there. They had no vowels so, uh, in the text, so they were just all oral uh, pronunciations of the words, even when they read them from the text. But this morning I want to ask you this question, what in the world is God doing? Let's begin our reading this morning from Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence, and before me, And there are they that raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth, for the wicked doth compass around the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. Let's ask the Lord's help as we look at his word together. 
Father, I pray today as we look at your word that you would encourage us, that you would instruct us, that you would challenge us. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. May he do his work, and may we allow him to do his work in us today as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Habakkuk, just a few introductory remarks on your notes that are in your bulletin there. Habakkuk means embracer. It means someone who embraces a message or someone who takes in a message or embraces a situation around him. It's interesting, we know very little about Habakkuk except that he is one of only three prophets in the Old Testament who are in the title of the book called a prophet. Not that others aren't prophet, but only three. And he is the only of the pre-exilic prophets. Now, what does pre-exilic mean? It means before the exile. So Habakkuk is prophesying, we know nothing else about him, sometime probably in the reign of Jehoiakim, and as he, uh, Jehoiakim, and this would have been at right after the ministry of Josiah. Remember Josiah? Josiah was the young king who came on the throne, and during his time there was a great revival in Judah. Israel has already been carried off, and uh, there was a great revival in um, Judah, and the reforms of Josiah were, were far-reaching and spread far and wide throughout the country. But as soon as Josiah died and Jehoiakim came on the throne, people began to forget what Josiah and his priest had taught. And this is when now that Habakkuk is prophesying. In 586 B.C., I actually jumped a little ahead of us here, 586 B.C., it's going to happen that Judah will be carried into captivity. In 722 B.C., Samaria, or northern Israel, was carried into captivity. But Judah thought that they would never, ever be carried into captivity. But we're going to find out something quite different the date is between 606 and 604 B.C., sometime around Babylon's victory at the Battle of Carchemish during the reign of Judas king Jehoiakim. The message is an interesting message because the book of Habakkuk is unlike any of the other prophets in two ways. First of all, Habakkuk dialogues with God about people instead of dialoguing with people about God. All the other prophets are talking to the people for God, and here Habakkuk is talking for the people to God. He's got some questions. He's got some complaints. He's got some concerns. Ever have any questions for God? Ever have any concerns? Ever look at what's happening in your life or in the life of one of your loved ones or in the life of some of your family members or some of your friends and wonder? what God is doing? Habakkuk is such a man. Also, he is unlike the other prophets that instead of proclaiming divine judgment, 
he pleads for divine judgment. Now, there's an interesting thought. Instead of pronouncing divine judgment, he says, God, we need some divine judgment here. Having gone through the reforms and living through the reforms of Josiah and the revival and the great spiritual awakening, as it were, and now the people are beginning to turn away from those very truths. And Habakkuk says, what we need is for God to come down and clean house a little bit. We need to come, God to come down and take care of the wicked so that the righteous can flourish. Pretty interesting because none of the other prophets really do that as a whole. Maybe here and there some. And as you read the book of Habakkuk, you will see that much of what he writes is more like poetry than it is like apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature. So he's a very interesting person. The key verse comes from chapter 2, verse 4b, and that is, but the just shall live by faith. That is used three times in the New Testament, twice by the Apostle Paul and once by the author of Hebrews, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. But it's a key verse for the whole book. And on your outline that I put in your bulletin this morning, there's several outlines available just to kind of give you some suggested outlines. I think one of my favorites is uh, why, what, and, uh, and wow. Uh, as we look at these texts, different ways to look at them, but the message is the same. And I'll leave those to your preview. So this morning I want to talk to you about three truths concerning God's ways. Three truths concerning God's way. Number one, God's ways are often mysterious. God's ways are often mysterious. The very fact that God is God and you are not ought to remind us that God knows a lots of things that we don't know. And he is working out a lot of things that we can't even imagine, as we'll read in a few moments. God's ways are often mysterious. Having gone to seminary lots of years ago now, I am reminded of all the times during breaks and lunch hours and stuff when the seminarians would sit around and discuss all the issues and, and they had all the answers. And the one thing I've learned as I've gotten older is I'm not even sure I know all the questions, let alone all the answers. The older I get, as Pastor often says, the less I realize I really know about God. I have made it an uh, intent hobby of mine to read on the person of God, on the character of God. And I have probably two or 300 books in my library just on the person of God. And I've read, I think most of them, maybe one or two that I haven't. But there's still a lot I don't understand about God. Because God's ways are often mysterious. He sometimes seems unusually inactive. 
Notice what our text says again. It says, in a burden, that word means that which is lifted up, that which is carried. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out with desperation unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are they that rise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass me about the righteous, therefore wrong, um, wrong judgment proceedeth. He says, basically, I keep praying, and the more I pray, the worse it gets. Violence, he says. It's a word used throughout this book. He says, injustice is rising. Instead of going to court and being defended according to the word of God, that even the priests in the own land of Judah are perverting judgment. He sometimes seems unusually inactive. He says, God, where are you? Can you not hear? Can you not see what's going on, God? Can't you do anything? When we see injustice in our land, when we see injustice in our world, when we look into the pages of history and see the injustices of men, we may ask the same questions. Can he not hear? Can he not see? Can he not do anything? Where is God? Sometimes he seems unusually inactive. Secondly, sometimes he answers in unusual ways. Sometimes he answers in unusual ways. Verse 5 says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe though it be told you. What's he saying? Simply this, I'm about to do something, and when you see it, you're not even going to believe it. Even if I told you before I did it, and he actually does, you're not going to believe it. It is so unique, it is so unusual, it is so different than what you expect that you're not even going to believe it. Sometimes in our life, God works in unusual ways, in things we would never have imagined, things we would never have chosen, things we would have never expected. And those who face life with a sense of reality sooner or later face those kinds of situations. He sometimes answers in unusual ways. He may answer with more of the same. In these first few verses, he says, the more I pray, the more violence there is. The more I ask you for help and for intervention, the more things get crazy. The more things degenerate. Things may become worse before they get better. Ever been there? 
I have. And you pray and you ask God's intervention and you want God to intercede and he lets things get worse before they get better. Why is that, Pastor Don? I don't know. Except that God has a purpose and God has a plan. And nothing that happens to me in my own life is ever wasted because God uses it for my good and his glory. He sometimes answers in an unusual way. And number three, he sometimes utilizes unusual instruments. He says, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. The Chaldeans. He goes on to say in the verses that follow, which we'll read in a few moments, that it will be these Chaldeans who will discipline the people of God. That he is going to use these wicked Babylonians Assyrians, Babylonians, Chaldeans, in that order. ABC. That's the, the way the people are. The Chaldeans have, have uh, he has raised up to accomplish his purpose in his plan. But let's stop and think about what kind of people these people were. They were the most wicked people of the day. They were the most ruthless people of the day. They had no qualms about anything. And God's going to raise them up. And he's going to call Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And he's going to use them for his people's good and for his glory. Now, if that doesn't stretch your mind, if that doesn't make you scratch your head, then you're not really looking at it carefully enough. God is going to take the most wicked people on the earth at the time and use them to correct his children. I consider that pretty unusual. And yet that's exactly what God says he's going to do. God's ways are not only mysterious, but God's ways, number two, are often misunderstood. I was raised in a church where if good things happened to you, it was because God liked you. And if bad things happened to you, God was mad at you. One of my favorite insurance uh, stories, my brother works for an insurance, a major insurance company. He's worked for him for 27 years. And one of their um, clients had four claims in the same year, and so they canceled their insurance. And when the agent went out to see him to tell him that they had canceled his insurance, he said, well, why did you cancel our insurance? He said, well, you had four claims. He said, well, they were all weather-related. They were all God things. I, nothing could to do it. To which the agent replied, if God don't like you, we don't like you either. <laughs> that's kind of how some people think we want to be able to have a nice little meat box 
in which to put God. And say, when I do good things, God blesses me always. And when I do bad things, God chastens me and disciplines me always. But the problem is, in real life, that's not always easy. Those boxes aren't so easy to distinguish. I take you to a man named Job, who, interestingly enough, God says there was not a more righteous, blameless person alive than Job. And at the same time, more bad stuff didn't ever happen to one person than to Job. And what did all of his good friends say? Must be doing something wrong, Job, or God wouldn't be doing that to you now. But God's ways are often misunderstood. First, by his children, they often misunderstand. As I said, we often get the idea that, you know, when good things are happening, God likes me, and when bad things happen, God doesn't like me. And the truth is, God always likes me. He always loves me. He gave his son for me. Now, there are times when he's disappointed in my behavior. I love my kids, but there were times when I was disappointed in their behavior. There were times when I sent them to the room because... I didn't want to see them at the moment. (laughs) But they're still my kids. And I still loved them. But sometimes his children. And so Habakkuk makes a complaint. And that's okay to complain to God. God already knows what's in in your heart. No need, you don't have to hide it from him in your words. Just be honest with him. Habakkuk says, God, I'll just be honest. I don't get what's going on. What's happening here? How is it that the more we pray, the worse it gets? But then also, whoops, went one too far there, by his careless children who say, yeah, it doesn't really, God's not paying any attention because we're doing unjust things and uh, nothing's happening. I'm amazed at how many people today believe that because God isn't judging them that what, the way they're living is okay. They've forgotten about the long-suffering and patience of God. They've forgotten about the general blessing of God, the common grace of God. We've come into a world of quid pro quo where we think everything equals something and, and God doesn't always work on, those base, on that basis. But if he's misunderstood by his children, how much more is he misunderstood by the world? The world has a very skewered... They do not see God's hand. It amazes me every time something happens, tragedy happens, there are those who immediately stand up and say, where is God? They don't stand up and ask that question when all the good things that happen every day to them. You see, we tend to focus on the bad, the negative, and recognize except for the grace of God, things would be worse than they are. You think things are bad? Take out the restraining ministry of the church and the Holy Spirit and things will really be bad. 
we ought to thank God that things aren't any worse than they are, not that they are worse than they used to be. It is by God's grace that men aren't as sinful as they could be. They're sinful, and there's in some ways more flagrant about their sin than they've ever been. But still, they're not as sinful as they could be. And we only need to look back in the pages of history and see men such as Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, lots of others before them and after them to see some of the depth to which sinners can go. And there are people every day who miss the hand of God in their life. They don't know him as Lord and Savior, don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They don't know God as their Father. And they miss every day the hand of God in their life. One of my goals is just to remind people of that. I personally believe that every time someone is healed, whether they're saved or not, it's a gift from God. And I just tell people that. They say, well, you know, I was healed. I said, that was a gift from God. Well, you know, I got a new job. That's a gift from God. The world doesn't see it that way, but I'm not going to let them get away. I'm going to remind them it's a gift from God. They do not see God's hand. They attribute everything to themselves. You read through here, and these guys, they say, it's us. We're strong. We're powerful. Nobody can stop us. We can build. We can go. We can do anything we want because we are we. They attribute everything to themselves. Verse 11 says, Then shall his his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing that this is a power unto his God, and his God is himself. It's all about us. God says, I'm using them, but they're saying it's all about us. We're doing whatever we want. We're in charge. Lots of people live their lives today like they're in charge but they're really not. God is in charge. And we need to remind people that whatever blessings they have, they come from God. Whatever success they have ultimately comes from God. Whatever prosperity they have, it's a gift from God. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he built the great... Uh, city of Babylon, and he said, look what I've done. And it says God struck him. And for a period of time, he was like an animal. And then it says he came to his senses, and he said, there's a God in heaven who chooses and who does, who lifts men up and brings them down. And he goes on through the text. What in the world is God doing? Well, sometimes his ways are are often mysterious. His ways are often misunderstood. And then, but finally, God's ways are always masterful. They're always masterful. Just because you can't see it, just because you can't get a hold of it, just because you can't grasp it, just because you can't figure it out doesn't mean that God is not doing a work that even if he told you, you would not be able to 
to understand it. History is under his divine control. Verse 5 says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. God says, history is under my control. History is under divine control. Speaking generally, all of history is under his control. God is not surprised. God is not taken off guard by the choices of men and women, whether they be good men and women or evil men and women, because God is working out his purpose and plan in the ages. History is under his divine control. History follows a divine plan. It follows a divine plan. God has a plan. He says, not only am I going to do something, here's specifically what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up someone, and I'm going to use them for my honor and for my glory. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. And he goes on to discuss them. They are terrible, dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of them. Their horses are swifter than leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves. And their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteneth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold for they shall heal keep dust and take it. Then shall his mind change and he shall pass over and offend, imputing that his power unto his God. Imputing his power unto his God. History follows a divine plan. History follows a divine timetable. God has a timetable. God is working out his purpose and plan in his time and in his way. And as we look at our text today, we are reminded that God is in control. That what God is doing is not always clear to us. That what God's plan is, is clearly not always clear to us. But Habakkuk is reminded by God that he is in control. That history follows the divine purpose and the divine plan and the divine timetable. That nothing escapes the purpose and the plan of God. I love the story of Job because when you look at the book of Job it starts with Satan but it ends with God and Satan is walking before God and God puts a challenge out he says have you considered my servant Job Satan said well sure I'd be blameless and too if you gave me all the stuff you gave Job. Nice house, great kids, 
all kinds of riches, popularity, well-liked in the community, revered. Sure, who wouldn't serve you if you gave them all that? And God said, take it away. Take everything but his life. You can't touch him, but take all that stuff away. And God does, and Satan does. God allows him to. He loses his flocks, and he loses his children. Then Satan talks to him, and he ultimately loses his health. Now, the difference in reading that story is you and I have the whole story. Job doesn't. Suppose that next week you lost your job, your business went bankrupt, all your family members were killed, and you were the one left. Would you maybe ask the question, what in the world is God doing? That's what Job asked. What in the world is God doing? Job doesn't know. But as we go through our text, we'll see so many parallels between Job and between what God tells Habakkuk that it comes down to trusting God even when you don't understand him. Resting in God even when you can't figure him out. All of history is his story. I am convinced that there is not one thing that ever happens in all of history that God did not either design or permit for his people's good and for his glory. But you say, that doesn't make sense. Well, we'll come next week and we'll talk about that because Habakkuk is going to say next week, huh? You're going to do what? Are you kidding me? I don't think he was that uh, flippant with it. He said, God, I can't believe it. And we'll talk about that some more next week. But what is God doing? His ways are often mysterious. His ways are often misunderstood, but his ways are always marvelous. So what's our conclusion and response this morning? Number one, God is in control. Will you trust him? Do you really believe that God is in control? Or is that just something you say? This comes down to trusting the character of God, the person of God. There will be, if there hasn't been, things that happen in your life, and at the moment you will be tempted to question the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or the holiness of God or the love of God. But God is in control. Most of you have heard the story, some of you may not. About 13 years ago, we lost our 16-year-old son. A victim of the blackout game. We wondered 
what in the world is God doing? Good kid, not into drugs, not into things he shouldn't have been other than playing a game with the kids. And then he tried it at home by himself while we were gone. The question that comes to your mind is, what in the world, God, is you do, are you doing? And what we knew and had to learn again, or be reminded of, is that God is good. God always does what's best for us. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. God is holy. I remember as the medics were working on him, trying to revive him, I remember praying this, say, Lord, I, I don't know what your plan is. I know that you can bring him back. But I don't know what your will is. And he didn't. God is in control. Will you trust him? Even when you don't understand him? God is in control. Will you rest on his promises? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll supply all your needs. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. All the other promises. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And a hundred other promises. And it comes down to if God is in, really in control, will you trust him? Will you trust his character? Say, yes, but I don't understand. He didn't say we have to understand. I turn on electricity every morning. I don't understand all about how it works. But it's still turned on. God is in control. Will you trust him? God is in control. Will you rest on his promises? Even when you can't see how they're going to be fulfilled. God is in control. Will you wait for his way and his timing? Or will you be like Abraham? Doesn't look like it's working out, so let's come up with plan B. And Hagar and Ishmael come into the picture, which creates problems not only in their day, but up into even today. And often when God puts us in a situation that we do not understand, that we cannot figure out, that doesn't make sense to us if we're not careful, we will run ahead and figure something out to do. When I was growing up, they used to use the statement, do something even if it's wrong. But that's wrong. The plan of God is that God is in control. And, but you must wait for his way and his time. It's not always easy, but it has to be done. God is in control. Will you trust him? God is in control. Will you rest on his promises?
God is in control. Will you wait for his way and his timing? Let's stand for a word of prayer.